So they sitting there and they panicking. They screaming, sell, sell. Because they don't want to lose all their money, right? They out there panicking right now. I can feel it. They out there. They panicking. Look at them. Banks better have that money. Y'all should know this well enough. Banks better have that money. Please don't call us on this bluff. Pay us what you owe us. We thought you said in God we trust. Banks give us that money. The treasury better back that up like brop, brop, brop. FDIC only going to guarantee like 250 so what about my stocks? SIPC covers a quarter milli, but what about the shocks? To the economy when there's no liquidity as banks grab all they got. Don't act like you forgot. 08 hurt us a lot. Like drop, drop, drop. 1873 before you and me when the railroad bubble popped. 1983 after Volcker blew his top. Don't remind me about 1933, that depression wouldn't stop. We gotta know our history when Fed policy starts to flop, and credit defaults start, start to pop, and capital markets start to chop. Like brop, 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 show us what you got. We got a plan, we'll make some moves, we're playing 3D chess. We'll stay on track, no setbacks when you ride the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And whoa, somehow, someway, the major U.S. equity markets closed higher again last week, battling through more bad news from banks, another rate hike by the Fed, and bedlam in the bond market. We managed to get through a week without another bank failure. That's good news these days. But the drumbeat around broken balance sheets among regional banks keeps getting louder. Banks borrowed $300 billion from the Fed's various lending facilities since SVB's collapse, so we know the fear is real. The Fed went through with its quarter-point rate hike as expected, but Fed Chair Powell acknowledges that weakness in the banking system is creating its own form of liquidity tightening. And if it weren't for that, the Fed was likely to raise rates a half a percent to put the final chokehold on inflation. The events of the last two weeks are likely to result in some tightening of credit conditions for households and businesses and thereby weigh on demand on the labor market and on inflation. Um, such a tightening in financial conditions would, would work in the same direction as rate tightening. In principle, as a matter of fact, you can think of it as being the equivalent of a rate hike or perhaps more than that. You get that. Banks' balance sheets are a hot mess, in large part because of rising interest rates. Rising interest rates are also a drag on lending and economic growth. The Fed's been trying to slow growth for the past year because it's created unsustainable inflation, but it's not really working that well. The knock-on effect, though, of higher rates on bank deposits, which are largely invested in government-backed securities, is slowing down the economy and threatens to plunge it into the recession everyone's been waiting for since last summer. If you look at the FOMC's summary of economic projections, which it releases along with its decision on interest rates, the median GDP projection is just 0.4% for 2023 and a mere 1.2% growth for 2024. That's going to feel like slow motion compared to the past two years. So why didn't the stock market completely tank last week? Well, maybe it's because investors can finally see the end of rate hikes coming up ahead. Chair Powell was quick to point out that the FOMC dropped the word ongoing from its statement on monetary policy, replacing that with, quote, additional policy firming may be appropriate. Now, policy firming is not an economics term. It's a Powellism, and it doesn't exist anywhere, not even on Investopedia.com or on the FederalReserve.gov website. It's a new monetary policy expression that we will duly add to our library. But what does it mean? It means the Fed has other ways to tighten monetary policy without raising rates. And in fact, it's already happening, whether the Fed likes it or not, because of tightened bank lending. As for rates, if we look at the most recent dot plot, the most boring yet the most important chart in finance and economics right now, it shows where FOMC members forecast where Fed funds rates should be for the next three years, and that is telling us that they think the terminal rate should be 5.1%. 
That's the apex for rates, and we should hit that number this year. In 2024, the Fed funds rate is projected to be closer to 4%, and by 2025, closer to 3%. All that could change, of course. The Fed may be forced to cut rates if the economy unravels quickly, or the banking crisis becomes more contagious. But seeing the end of rate hikes on the horizon and the Fed's softened language may have emboldened stock investors to come back to their favorite stocks through a pretty choppy week. The question is, have equity investors grown too optimistic about the Fed's future plans? And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one. There's a pretty big disconnect between what the Fed is saying and what investors might actually be hearing. Or maybe it's a case of the Fed saying one thing, but investors choosing not to believe it. We just talked about the Fed's dot plot and where voting members of the Fed's Open Market Committee think interest rates should be for the next three years. They have all the data and hundreds of economists and statisticians working on this. And then there's the Fed Fund's futures. These are future contracts that traders bet on to predict the path of interest rates. You can track these on the CME's FedWatch tool, which we've been referring to constantly over the past year. As we just said, the dot plot shows the Fed's terminal rate at about 5.1% by the end of 2023. But the market, according to Fed Fund Futures, has that number pegged at around 4.1%, a full percentage point lower. It doesn't sound like a lot, but a 1% difference in the most important denominator when forecasting inflation, earnings growth potential, and yields could mean hundreds of billions of dollars in gains or losses. And mind the gap, by the way, the yield curve, the spread between the two-year U.S. Treasury and the 10-year U.S. Treasury, is headed for its steepest monthly increase since October of 2008. So who's right? The Fed, the bond market, or stock investors? That's the most important question we're going to face this year. Number two, if banks are such a hot mess right now, why are so many banking executives buying their own stock? Bank stocks, especially regional bank stocks, have gotten shellacked over the past two weeks in rolling waves of volatility. Shares of First Republic are down 90% in just the past several weeks, and KRE, the regional bank ETF, is down 30% in the past month. You might expect bank execs to be bailing out of their own stock and running for the hills like they did at Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. It'd be a bad look, to be sure, but their buddies at the golf course would definitely understand. But that's not what's happening right now at the majority of regional banks. Not at all. According to Insider Insights, which tracks insider buying and selling, executives at regional banks were aggressive buyers of their own company shares for their own accounts throughout SVB's collapse. Insider buying at banks hit its highest level since March of 2020 after the market bottom. So bank insiders are buying bank stocks while bank customers are pulling their money out of banks, especially small banks, at a record clip. According to data from the Federal Reserve, bank customers collectively pulled $98.4 billion from accounts for the week ended March 15th, just as Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. A lot of that money, $67 billion worth, went to the big banks. The rest of that money went to market funds or under the mattress. Those withdrawals brought total deposits down to just over $17.5 trillion, representing about 0.6% of the total. Deposits have been on a steady decline over the past year or so, falling about $582.4 billion since February of 2022, according to the Fed. But there's still a lot of money in the bank, at least for now. So who's right here? Bank execs betting on bank stocks or bank customers who think their money is safer elsewhere. And number three, amid all the turmoil in the banking sector and the bond market, investors keep gravitating back to their old favorite stocks. We talked about it last week, but it bears repeating, especially when over-concentration starts taking over again. And that's exactly what we're seeing with shares of Apple and Microsoft lately. Apple, which is the largest stock in the S&P 500 with a market cap of more than $2.5 trillion, is back to making up a full 29% of the S&P 500 tech sector. Apple and Microsoft alone, the two biggest and most widely held stocks on the planet, currently account for 13.3% of the S&P 500. That's the most on record. 
As the Goldman Sachs strategy team points out, we haven't seen this kind of concentration and dominance by two companies since AT&T and IBM dominated the S&P 500 in the late 1970s. That didn't ultimately end well, by the way, but both of those companies are still around. Still, concentration can be a double-edged sword. As goes Apple and Microsoft, so goes the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, the two market-weighted indexes. If they sneeze, the entire stock market gets the flu, and allergy season feels like it's coming on strong. Even with the Fed set to pause rate hikes this year, those rising rates have been pushing investors out of stocks all year into money market funds, CDs, and bonds. And that pattern, according to Goldman Sachs, is set to continue. Because there are finally reasonable alternatives to stocks, Goldman predicts that American households will sell $750 billion of stock this year in the first annual drop in demand since 2018. Are they going to sell their favorites too? We shall see. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and banks are going to be back in the headlines big time. The Senate Banking Committee will hold a hearing on bank failures with the witness list, including FDIC Chairman Martin Gruenberg, Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Michael Barr, and Treasury Undersecretary Nellie Liang. Fed Chair Powell said last week that the Fed is conducting an investigation into the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and another separate investigation as to why the central bank missed all the warning signs of the current crisis. Both are good questions. With bank liquidity circling in the winds, worries about credit spreads, and a renewed emphasis on credit default swaps are likely to come with them. As a refresher, credit default swaps are a financial derivative that allows an investor to swap or offset their credit risk with that of another investor. To swap the risk of default, the lender buys a credit default swap from another investor who agrees to reimburse them if the borrower defaults. Credit default swaps on banks have been on the rise lately as some investors doubt their ability to weather the storm. Credit default swaps on Deutsche Bank, for example, shot up 220 basis points just last week, the most since late 2018. Deutsche Bank is the 22nd largest bank in the world with $1.5 trillion in deposits. That should tell you something. Shout out to Tucker Tuttle and Joe Chapo who recommended credit default swaps for our term of the week this week on Instagram. We're also going to get updates on the U.S. housing market this week with the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index and the FHFA House Price Index for January. And on Friday, inflation is back on the menu as we'll get the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. It likely climbed about half a percent last month, but it should be continuing to slow down on an annual basis. Look for around 5.1% year over year compared to that 5.4% we saw back in February. On the earnings calendar, a pretty light week headlined by Carnival Cruise Lines, Lululemon, Micron, Walgreens, and BlackBerry, to name a few. The first quarter wraps up on Friday, so let's do a little scorekeeping as we head into the final week and put some things in perspective. According to our buddies at YCharts, here are some year-to-date returns that are getting our attention. Bitcoin is up 67% so far this year. Maybe it is digital gold. Gold, the OG inflation hedge, is up 8%. The NASDAQ 100, that's up nearly 17%. The S&P 500, up almost 3%. Thank you, Apple and Microsoft. Dow Industrials, down more than 2%. The Russell 2000, down 1%. Government bonds, up 2.8%. And the US dollar, up just 1%. With all the noise out there, who else is a little surprised that the stock market is actually higher for the quarter and the NASDAQ is on its way to a new bull market? Things are getting a little clearer, coming into a little bit more focus now that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates yet again, but may have signaled that it could be close to the end of its tightening campaign. But that doesn't mean we should expect any easing of financial conditions anytime soon, and the issues on the balance sheets of many banks are only amplifying the situation and adding more uncertainty into the mix. So how does all this translate into our expectations for future returns for our portfolios, for our savings, 
for just about everything. Well, nobody can break this down better for us than Anastasia Amoroso. She's the chief investment strategist at iCapital and a return guest on the Investopedia Express. Delighted to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Great to be with you, Caleb. Interesting times. So I'd love to know your reaction to the Fed's move and Powell's comments. And I read your commentary, folks. We'll link to it in the show notes. But let's get into just your, your reaction off the top. Yeah, I think it's a de facto pause. I mean, the Fed did hike 25 basis points, but I think what's more meaningful for the markets is that they essentially really said they're not sure if they're going to be any more rate hikes going forward. I mean, the whole statement that there may be some more tightening, that's just a whole lot of buts, ifs, and maybes. And, you know, maybe that's Fed Chair Powell's way of saying, you know, we're sort of done for now. And then you square that with a summary of economic projections and the dots, the dots suggest that they will pause or stop the hiking cycle at 5.1%. And we're really within the striking distance of that. So that's a positive for the markets that we don't have to withstand any more tightening, for, at least from the Fed. And that's why you've seen the initial reaction in the markets that was really this rally, and especially in some of the tech stocks. We gave some of it back yesterday. We came back to kind of reprice this rally once again today. And I think it's a natural reaction to the Fed finally being at the tail end of the hiking cycle. Yeah, he introduced all kinds of new terminology yesterday, too, I thought. We're talking on a Thursday. Fed Chair Powell spoke on Wednesday, but he said additional policy firming may be appropriate, but he was very clear to say and change that language. We didn't hear that word ongoing, and he even specified that further in the press conference. So I think he's talking a little bit about tightening financial conditions, which you address in your note, and I know it's something you're very concerned about. That notion of additional policy firming, what do you think he was referring to? Well, I think he would tell you that it was referring to additional rate increases. But I think what the committee is really considering is to what extent are the credit conditions going to tighten because of what's happening with the regional banks. And, you know, what really struck me is what he said, which is a significant number of participants expect to see tightening in credit conditions. And, you know, the reason they're concerned, and I sympathize with that, is because the reality is the funding costs for banks are going up across the board as the Fed hikes rates and also as you have the fallout from some of the banking crisis in the U.S. and Europe, the funding costs are rising. And at the same time, the yield curve has been inverted for a while. So you're not actually getting potentially as much on your loans as what you're having to pay out in terms of costs. So all things considered, this erodes the net interest income opportunity for banks. And so when you have conditions like that, when you have ongoing concerns about deposits and deposit outflows, it can start with a trickle, but then just cascade out, the banks are going to be more prudent. They're going to tight standards. They're going to require higher costs to issue a loan. And all things considered, this is likely to lead to a slowdown in the credit cycle. Yeah, you said it in your note, which is the Fed's given us a new key metric to watch. That is the credit flow to the economy from banks. That's what banks do, but they're tight. Their balance sheets we know are not in good shape. These rate hikes have not been good at all for their balance sheets, even if they were mismanaging them in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and other banks. But still, this has not been healthy for them. And now we know these rates are going to be up in this range for a while. So let's talk about that credit flow to the economy from banks. Why are we so concerned about that? You point to a very important issue, which is it's not just SVB, it's not just the Signature Bank, it's not just First Republic or Credit Suisse that are dealing with some of these issues, but the reality is there's a competition for deposits that's raising the cost of capital. And then there's the other side of the balance sheet, which is what are the assets and they, do they have to be marked down because interest rates are rising? 
And the answer in the case of SVB was, yes, they had to be marked down because they were securities that had to be sold and were eventually sold. That's not necessarily the case for every single bank. But the thing that I'm really concerned about is until and unless you have a blanket guarantee on all deposits and all unsure deposits, depositors are either going to seek higher yield elsewhere or they're going to seek safety, you know, with some of the big banks. And so you still have this negative spiral of potential deposit outflows. And when you have that and you have a capital ratio that maybe is strong for the large bank, but is not as strong for a regional bank. And when you've loaned out 80% of your deposits, and now you're worried about those deposits flowing out as a bank, as hopefully a good risk manager, you're going to be more concerned and you're going to issue less loans as a result of that. And the ones that you issue, you're going to try to charge more for them. So that, Caleb, is what Powell was talking about in terms of that's the slowdown and that's the tightening that may be forthcoming for the economy. And this is a second order impacts, I guess. We've had the rate hikes. And instead of continuing with the rate hikes, all this cumulative tightening may actually manifest in tighter credit conditions. So that's why they said, look, rate hikes was the only tool we had early on. But now as the bank's tightening lending standards may actually do the job for us in terms of bringing down inflation. Yeah. And he even said they may have even hiked rates a half a percent if it hadn't been for what was happening within the bank. So that, I think, got people's attention as well. So we have this other thing where we have investors or some investors discounting around 75 basis points worth of rate cuts into the end of this year. They have this disconnect between what investors may be thinking and what the summary of economic projections may be telling us. Explain that to our listeners here and why that is important. Yeah, there is a big disconnect. Um, So as we talked earlier, the Fed is trying to get to 5.1% and stay there. And when Fed Chair Powell was asked, what about the 75 basis points of rate cuts that are priced in between now and the end of the year? He really pushed back on that and saying that's not the base case scenario. So to help understand why that is, first of all, you're right. I think what they really wanted to do before the banking crisis is to hike 50 basis points and potentially increase the terminal rate to 6%. That was their expectation. So the fact that they have a de facto pause and the fact that they're not even talking about higher terminal rates, that tells you kind of the amount of concern that they have about the banking sector and specifically the tightening that it may introduce to the economy. Having said that, they still have a job to do, which is to bring down inflation. You know, those inflation numbers today are not on pace to 2%. And, you know, if you extrapolate from the month over month change in CPI inflation, what the year over year inflation is going to look like around the midterm of the year, guess what? It might actually start to creep back up again, unless the monthly numbers slow down to zero or 0.1%. So that's where I worry the disconnect is, is the Fed is sort of compromising and saying, fine, we're not going to hike rates anymore. But given that inflation job is not done, don't expect us to cut them. So I think there's a repricing that may still need to happen in the bond markets to account for them. Right. And we'll feel that all the way through the rest of the capital markets because bonds really run things around here. So let's get into sort of that, what this translates to across the capital markets. We went from a period of TINA, right? There is no alternative to stocks because rates were so low. There was no yield on anything really outside of the stock market or some much riskier products to Tara, right? There is a reasonable alternative. There's money in the bank. There's money in bonds again, obviously. There's money in high yield savings and CDs and money market funds. And we've seen a ton of money move into money market funds in the last week 
but really over the course of the past year. So given that now that there is an alternative and we have this idea where that terminal rate is going to be, and it's kind of going to be around this range for a while, what does that translate to in terms of expectation returns from your eyes for the S&P 500? Well, I think it caps them. I think it definitely caps uh, the returns on the S&P, but it doesn't necessarily mean we have to go down to 3,600 or 3,300, certainly not in the near term. The reason I say this is, first of all, you know, if rates stay around this 5% level, I actually think that this U.S. economy can't withstand it. This is not the economy of 07, 08, where you had a lot more interest rate sensitivity. For example, Kayla, back in 08, we've issued 19% of mortgages that were adjustable rate mortgages. So no wonder a lot of households were hurt by that. Today, 4 or 5% of mortgages out there are floating rate. So there's some pain, but it's definitely limited in size and scope. Now you compare and contrast that to Europe, for example, and in some cases, 60, 70, 80% of their mortgages are adjustable rates. So that's a far bigger issue than in the US. But going back to the US, the fact that household net worth has risen, the fact that the unemployment rate is 3.6%, the fact that we don't have to pay up higher mortgage expense if we're not moving places, all of that tells me that we're not in an imminent kind of a hard landing type of a scenario. And that's why we may not need to have a recessionary multiple. You know, I think the people who kind of call for lower targets for the S&P are assigning a recession multiple to the current or lower EPS number. And, I, and I'm just not quite in that camp. But at the same time, I mean, where is the bullish narrative going to come from you know, to really help us break out above 4,200? For that, I think growth would need to reaccelerate. But if it does, what the Fed does. They may no longer be on pause. So it's still an uneasy time to be a risk taker and investor because it's a range and nobody likes to be trapped in a range. But I guess there are things to do in the range as well. Yeah, it doesn't mean that there's no way to invest. It just means if you're just hoping for the types of gains that we saw prior to last year in the first in those three years when the stock market was up 100%, there was a reason for that. That reason was because we were in trouble and the interest rates were floored to zero. We're not going back to that type of environment. But then we're also seeing this very curious thing, Anastasia, with a lot of reconcentration to big mega cap tech stocks right now. That might be an anticipation that rates are at least topped out here or they're going to fall a little bit and these stocks do better in that environment. Or is there a little bit of a flight to safety with no go with the big stocks because we know what they are and we know they produce cash flow and they've been delivered great returns over the last couple of decades. What do you make of all of that reconcentration in mega caps? Well, I personally like that trade a lot. And I think it's the right trade for people to be focusing on because of the two reasons that you mentioned, Caleb, which is if rates are now on pause and these are the same companies that have the same balance sheet strengths, that's kind of the perfect place to be. So if you think about the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ valuation reached at its peak 35 times forward earnings, and it is now retraced to 23, 24 times, depending on the day. So it's back to pre-pandemic levels, and it's certainly a lot more reasonable. The reason why we had this huge retracement in valuation is, of course, because it was going from zero to 5% interest rates. But now that that's behind us, that means that the valuation drag should no longer be impacting forward returns. To be fair, I don't expect the multiple to expand. It shouldn't because the Fed is still staying at 5%, but at the very least, you're not going to have the valuation drag. The second thing is the banking sector is in turmoil. The housing sector is essentially in collapse. There's a cyclical slowdown that's going on in the United States. And amidst that, you look at global IT spending, for example, which is still forecast to grow 5% this year. 
And if you look at the software spending, that's forecast to grow close to 12% this year. So all of a sudden you have a sector of the economy that's maybe somewhat resilient, if not immune from some of these cyclical slowdown worries. It is flush with cash. It could service as debt, most of which is fixed rate anyway. And that's what's driving this flight to safety. So I like that combination a lot. And clearly other investors do too. I mean, just last week, Caleb, you know, the S&P was up 1.4%, which is actually remarkable given all that was thrown at us last week. The software sector of the S&P was up 10%. So it really tells you the amount of rotation uh, into the sector that's going on behind the scenes. Right. And also probably an appetite among investors that want to get back to work buying stocks. I mean, it's been a over a year now of just not wanting to get into risky business, but I think investors have put so much cash either on the sidelines or in money market funds, 400 billion really over the past 12 months that they're looking for a reason to believe. And sometimes if they see it in the names they trust, I know this with our own readers, they like that home cooking. They like those big stocks that they grew up with. They're going to gravitate back to them any chance they get. Back to banks for just a second, because prior to the Fed meeting this week, you had written a week or so ago about the fact that the Fed might pause just given what's happening in the banks. So I'd love to know, obviously that didn't happen. What are the things you're looking for beyond that credit extension from banks to the economy inside banks and inside regional banks that you are looking for in terms of warning signs or signs of health as we go through the next couple of weeks? I mean, there's a few things that are broadly applicable to banks. And I would look for a number of things. You know, first of all, you look at the net interest margin and whether that's improving or whether it's projected to decrease for certain banks. And the reason why things like SVB and Signature Bank, for example, got in trouble is because they had some of the lowest net interest income assumptions or at least the rate of change versus some of the other banks. So I would be looking for those signs of weakness. I would be looking for some of the high loan to deposit ratios across banks, because those are the banks that are likely to rein in their lending if they're worried about what happens if the deposits go out of the door. I would also be looking at some of the, for example, common equity tier one capital ratio. That's one of the more common capital ratios to look at. And the reason why investors are opting for larger banks is because in the US, that capital ratio stands at 12% for larger banks, and it's 9 or 10% for smaller regionals. So given this weaker capital position, given that some of the smaller banks don't actually have to conform with the same liquidity coverage ratio, which by the way, is just, is just the number of high quality liquid assets that you have to cover potential deposit outflows. Large cap banks are subject to those. Some smaller cap banks are not. So I think investors are going to be really scrutinizing those numbers. And if there's any signs of weakness on any of those metrics, that's where I think some banks can get in trouble. Great points. And we know that they've already been looking at them, and especially if you look at the short selling on some of those banks. So it's those banks that have those sort of outsized ratios that don't look so healthy that are being targeted the most. But right now, everybody's under the microscope. All right. So if you had to put money to work right now in a diversified way, you talked about software, you talked about the tech sector and some of these big caps, but if you wanted to be comfortable putting money to work in a diversified way across asset classes right now, what's your playbook? What are you advising clients? Yeah. So the approach is really pretty simple. And I say, Caleb, that you know one of the silver linings that we have now is we have this luxury we haven't had for a while of being both defensive and getting paid for it and also being opportunistic because the valuations have reset. And so when I think about the luxury of being defensive, yes, I like cash. I like certain cash equivalents. I like 
munis and maybe even high yield munis that give you this really interesting after tax yield. I also like private credit. So if you think about what banks are going through as a result of all of this, one of the things they'll pull back from is lending to middle market companies. And those middle market companies, however, in turn can turn to a private credit manager. By the way, they're sitting on $450 billion of dry powder that they're looking to deploy in terms of loans. And those managers are likely to be issuing these loans and demanding tougher terms. So as an investor, if I can get floating rate exposure, because as I said, we've priced in too many cuts that maybe not be warranted. If I can get floating rate exposure and a spread of 600 basis points versus four or five that I was able to get before, that's a really healthy yield of close to 12%. So when you put this barbell together, you know, of getting paid between cash and all the way to private credit, that's a really healthy yield in the portfolio that makes you that much less reliant on trading ranges on the S&P. Having said that, as you know, investing when others are fearful is a good thing. Buying things when it feels terrible is a good thing. And I don't know if tech feels terrible anymore, but I'm a growth investor and I think I'll always be. And if I can buy some of these tech opportunities at discounted multiples, whether it's semis, whether it's software, I like that. I'm also a growth investor that looks to private markets. And if you think about artificial intelligence, if you think about fintech, if you think about, you know, all the decarbonization technologies, these are going to be disruptors for years to come. But so many of those opportunities right now are in private markets. And just as valuations reset in public markets, they're in the process of resetting in private markets right now. Late stage venture valuations, for example, have already started to correct. And I suspect there's more to come. So if I can commit to invest to those opportunities throughout the coming quarters, I think we'll pick up some pretty good valuations along the way. So it's a patient approach to portfolio allocation. But the beauty of it is that we're getting paid for that patience today by earning that yield on this other side of the portfolio. Right. And, and I love your point. You, defense does win championships. So it's okay to play defense and get paid for it right now while you look for some other opportunities. And to your point as well, those other opportunities might be outside of what we think of as the traditional capital markets. They might be in private markets, so but there are ways to access this for individual investors that are important to know. All right. We always love to ask you for your favorite term. What term is on your mind? We talked, we brought up some of the Fed's new term, new terminology. What do you think is the most important financial term or definition right now investors need to focus on in these uncertain times, Anastasia? I do think it's the credit cycle. As you know, the credit cycle drives economic growth and the expansion of credit has enabled anything from the consumer to commercial real estate. But this credit cycle just may be coming to an end. And it just sort of depends on how abrupt of an ending it is. But I think we're now transitioning to a much slower loan growth going forward. And unfortunately, potentially for rising defaults which also happens at the tail end of the credit cycle. So that's what I'm watching. And to kind of come back to the regional banks, I didn't even mention this this particular issue, but regional banks account for 70% of commercial real estate loans. And as a percentage of their loan books, it's a much larger percentage, like 43% versus 13% of uh, large cap bank loan books. So as a result, I'm watching the credit cycle and I'm watching particularly the CRE exposure of these regional banks. Yeah, that, that's so important to focus on. And that is sort of the lifeblood of what keeps money pumping through these communities across the country. So great, 
Great thing to focus on, great metric and another great term. And we so appreciate your clarity. Just feel better talking to you because you break it down so simply for us to understand. Anastasia Amoroso, the Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital. Thanks so much for coming back on The Express. We appreciate you so much. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Madeline Sauvé, I hope I'm saying that right, who hit us up on Instagram suggesting bank risk transformation. Ooh, we like that term given all the sudden interest in the balance sheets of banks around the world. According to our favorite website, bank risk transformation is the process by which banks and other depository institutions evaluate their credit risk against the deposits they hold and the loans they make. It involves diversifying where and how the bank is invested, managing risks throughout those investments, screening borrowers for default risk, and creating and holding adequate capital reserves to absorb any losses and outflows. It's what appeared to be missing at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and now investors and regulators are laser-focused on the degrees of bank risk transformation happening or not happening inside the global banking system. This banking crisis has turned a lot of us into banking students, which is a good thing. Our bank knows a lot about us, but how much do we really know about our banks? Great suggestion, Madeline. You helped make us a little bit smarter this week, and we're going to be sending you some of Investopedia's finest socks for that. We're going to let the late, great Robin Williams take us out this week. The actor, comedian, and legendary personality could make anything funny. And here he is on The Charlie Rose Show in 2009 in the ashes of the great financial crisis, giving it to the banks like only Robin Williams could do. Like a group of junkies who relapsed on, listen, man... <laughs> I just need some liquidity, you know what I'm saying? I just ran into some bad subprime, you know? We just had complex formulas. We just didn't factor in greed and panic, you know? I just need $805 billion by Tuesday. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Anastasia for coming back aboard the Express. She always smartens things up around here. We're going to link to her blog and all the reports we cited on today's episode, and you're going to find those in your show notes wherever you ride the Express and on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.